Chapter 8, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 8, Part 1 Social Life and Ceremonies of the Church. 1. We might express the great difference between the life of Christians and that of the world around them by saying that within the church were special gifts of the Holy Spirit. Outward signs of the presence of the Spirit, prophecy, healing of disease, casting out of demons, were still recognized in the first three centuries. Tertullian speaks as if it were an everyday matter for a Christian to compel a demon to disclose himself and quit the afflicted person. And not less, certain signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit were seen in the love and beneficence of the brethren towards each other family life received a new sacredness. Children were looked upon as a precious trust, to be trained in the chastening of the Lord for a higher life. Husband and wife, who were heirs together of the grace of life, were drawn together in a closer bond. Tertullian draws a charming picture of the serene happiness of a wedded pair who have all their thoughts in common, who share one hope and one service of God, who pray together, fast together, and approach together the table of the Lord." Marriage was regarded as indissoluble, except in the case of adultery. Nay, in the view of some, even death itself did not dissolve it, and second marriage was, to such, only respectable adultery. Doubts were early raised whether marriage was permitted to the clergy. Marriages between Christians and heathens were of course looked upon with disfavor. The poor, widows and orphans, those who were sick or in prison, and friendless Christian strangers, were the charge of the community. For these, contributions were made at the celebration of the Eucharist. Ladies visited the poor at their own homes. Large sums were given for the redemption of captives. Never was the helpfulness and the courage in the presence of danger which distinguished the brotherhood more marked than in the time of pestilence. While pagans deserted their nearest kindred, or cast them half dead into the streets, Christians gave the utmost care to the sick and the dead, Christian or pagan, regardless of the deadly atmosphere which they breathed. The Christian regarded his whole life as guarded by Christ, and loved the sign of his cross. Christians lived in the world as not of the world. They were serious while much of the world around them was frivolous. Many of the amusements and occupations of paganism seemed incompatible with a life vowed to God. The pagan divinities seemed to them evil demons, and their votaries given over to a strong delusion. And as splendid dress and decorative art were largely in the service of pagan worship, they looked with suspicion and dislike upon all artificial attractions. Every trade which ministered to idolatry was of course forbidden, and some regarded the disguises of a stage-player as a kind of deceit and fraud not permitted to true worshippers. Such teachers also inveighed against elegance and attractiveness in women's dress as unworthy of those who should be devoted to Christ. And even without such admonition, in time of persecution, the realities of life were too absorbing to permit much attention to be given to its ornamentation. Civic life was so interwoven with pagan worship, so many common observances implied a recognition of some deity, that Christian life in the midst of heathenism was full of pitfalls. It was doubted by some whether it was lawful to wear a garland on the head, or to read the doorposts on occasions of public festivity. Already in the time of St. Paul perplexity arose from the fact that portions of the victims offered in sacrifice were publicly sold at the shambles, and this must have continued so long as pagan sacrifices were tolerated. Some doubted whether it was lawful for a Christian to serve in the Roman armies under standards which implied a deification of the emperor. Those who served could, however, point to the examples of the centurion at Capernaum and of Cornelius, who are not recorded to have left their military profession. 
2. The horror which the Christian felt towards the pagan world expressed itself in an extreme form in the rigorous life which was known as asceticism, a life, that is, of self-denial such as was not expected from the ordinary Christian. Ascetics were distinguished by their withdrawing, so far as might be, from the world, and devoting themselves to prayer and meditation on holy things, by their scanty diet and abstinence from marriage. To such was assigned a special rank in the house of prayer. As early as the latter half of the second century we find both men and women devoting themselves to lifelong celibacy in the hope of nearer communion with God. The apologistation was the leader of those who, from their severe self-control, were called encratites, and Hierakas, a pupil of origin and in many ways a distinguished man, held principles hardly less rigid. Under the influence of such principles, women lived unmarried under vows, not yet absolutely perpetual. Some, in their exaltation, were led to attempt that which is above nature, living, while vowed to continence, in the same house and in the utmost familiarity with men bound by similar vows. Such arrogant purity, which was found to have evil consequences, was forbidden by a definite enactment in the beginning of the fourth century. This appreciation of virginity not unnaturally led to depreciation of marriage, to which no doubt some of the coarse associations of heathenism still clung. So much coarseness, in truth, was found in pagan marriage feasts that Cyprian thought them no fit scenes for the presence of a disciple of Christ. 3. The feeling of the vanity of earthly things, and of the need of self-discipline and self-mortification, combined with horror of the pagan world, to drive enthusiastic devotees into the desert. Many souls in all ages of Christianity have felt the deep longing to withdraw from the vain and unsatisfying pleasures and pomps of the world into the deep, unbroken solitude in which communion with God seems more possible. The first great saint of the desert, the first, that is, who made a great impression on the world, was Antoninus, whom we commonly know as St. Anthony. Born near Memphis, in the middle of the third century, he was impelled by the hearing of the gospel precepts, Sell all that thou hast, and take no thought for the morrow, to divest himself of all his worldly wealth. He visited some who were already hermits, to learn their manner of life, and soon after fixed his dwelling in the midst of barren hills, about a day's journey from the Red Sea, in a ruined tower, the entrance to which he blocked up with stones. There he remained for many a year, seeing no human countenance, unless it were that of a friend who twice a year brought him a supply of bread. It was in this solitude that he experienced the temptations which have become famous." Outraged nature rose against him, and filled his imagination, sometimes with horrible forms of demons, sometimes with alluring phantoms of beautiful women. The tidings of the persecution of Maximin lured him from his retreat to Alexandria, where the Alexandrians looked with wonder on the strange form from the desert. He encouraged confessors before the judge, and ministered to the saints in prison, but found not the martyr's crown. His visit to the haunts of men, however, spread abroad his fame, and his desert became populous with disciples, on whom he enjoined the great duties of prayer and work. Here we see the beginning of the conobium, the common life of ascetics, afterwards so largely developed. He himself continued to lead a life of watchings and fastings, hardly consenting to take sufficient food to sustain life. He was unlearned, but wise with long experience of the human heart. His saying, As the demons find us, so they behave towards us, and according to the thoughts which are in us they direct their assaults, shows that he was no brain-sick visionary. At his word the sick were sometimes healed and demons driven out, but he was neither elated when God heard his prayer, nor angry when his prayer was not answered. In all things he praised the Lord. 
A true physician of the soul, he reconciled enemies and comforted mourners. In the midst of this poverty which made many rich, it was made known to him where he would find one who was more perfect than himself. Paul of Thebes had dwelt since the persecution of Decius in a cave of the desert, where a palm-tree gave him shade, clothing, and food. For ninety years he had been lost to men, and was found by Anthony as he lay at the point of death. As his own end drew near, he withdrew from the veneration and the disquiet of humankind further into the desert, and only reappeared occasionally to defend the faith or to protect the oppressed. He departed at last in extreme old age, leaving behind him the fame of a pure and simple character, and a great posterity in the numerous army of hermits. 4. The great end and aim of Christian teaching, with regard to a man's life among his fellows, is to produce in each man such a condition of heart and mind, as will itself impel him to right conduct. But Christian morality has also another aspect. There is given to the church, considered as a theocratic community, a code specially revealed and sanctioned by glorious promises and terrible penalties. This code has to be enforced, and the purity of the society guarded. Hence, within the church, the great problems of morality tended to assume a juristic aspect. The heads of the community are not merely teachers of morality or ministrants in sacred things, but also jurists administering a code, determining what censure or penalty should be inflicted in particular cases. The great penalty was the exclusion of offenders, for a longer or shorter period, from the privileges of membership, and these privileges could only be regained by a long process of prayer, fasting, and humiliation, a process comprehended under one word, penitence, together with public confession of sin in the midst of the congregation. Excommunication, with its consequences, became, in fact, the great earthly sanction of the moral law. The judgment on such cases was committed to the presbyters under the presidency of their bishop, but, as is evident from the history of the church, the bishops exercised a dominant influence, and were held responsible for the severity or laxity of the proceedings. The germ of the code which guided the decisions of the ecclesiastical judge was found in the commands of the Lord himself and in the Decalogue. With regard to other precepts of the Mosaic law, the early church does not seem to have laid down any definite principle by which commands of perpetual obligation might be distinguished from those which were merely national and temporary. There were, for instance, different opinions as to the necessity of abstaining from things strangled and from blood. In the church, as in other societies, circumstances arose which were not explicitly provided for by the law, and decisions of churches or bishops from time to time enlarged the scope of old precepts. Hence there was formed a mass of traditional or common law, which was often, in fact, new, while it claimed to be old, and which passed current under venerable names. A collection of such precepts is found in the Teaching of the Lord through the Twelve Apostles, in the Ordinances of the Holy Apostles, which are derived from it, and in the so-called Apostolical Constitutions, and Canons of the Holy Apostles. The Constitutions consist of eight books, of which the first six clearly reflect the customs and practices of the Eastern Church of the first three centuries. The seventh is founded upon the Ordinances. The eighth, though it may contain matter belonging to an earlier period, embodies the ritual of the middle of the fourth century, and has been thought to exhibit traces of Arianism. The canons which bear the name of the Apostles are a collection of precepts from the Constitutions, or from the Acts of various synods up to the fourth century. It may be observed that although these collections bear the names of apostles or apostolic men, they were never placed by the ancient church on an equality with scripture. As may readily be supposed, the administration of this system of penalties was by no means free from difficulty. 
penitents were readmitted to communion in one church with much more facility than in another. One of the grounds for the attack of Hippolytus on Callistus, bishop of Rome, was his excessive readiness to restore to communion all manner of sinners, so as to lower the standard of Christian holiness. Hippolytus appears to have been chosen anti-bishop by the party discontented with the mild rule of Callistus. And again, at a later period, when Cornelius declined to make heavy the yoke which since the time of Callistus had been light, one of his presbyters, Novatianus, rose up against him, and was made the bishop of an opposition. This was a man of considerable culture, of ascetic life, and nervous temperament, who had received benefit from the prayers of a Christian exorcist, and so been won for Christianity. Like Justin Martyr, he was reputed a philosopher. He laid down the principle— that the first duty of ecclesiastical rulers was to preserve the church as a pure society of saints, or cathari. Hence, that one who by sin had separated himself from God, and been excluded from the church, could never be received back into it, though he exhorted the fallen to repentance, even without hope of returning to the church. The Novatianists refused communion with the Catholic Church, and baptized anew those who came over to them from Catholicism. Novatianus died as a martyr under Valerian, but the schism perpetuated itself for some generations. One of the Novatianist bishops was Asasius, who at the Council of Nicaea Constantine bade to plant a ladder and go up into heaven by himself. Meantime a schism had arisen on opposite grounds at Carthage. In the severity of persecution there were some who delivered up to the pagans their copies of holy scripture, traditores, some who had actually sacrificed to idols, lapsi, and some who, without sacrificing, had obtained from the magistrates, by favor or bribery, certificates of having sacrificed, labellatici. When such offenders desired to be restored to the church, it became a pressing question how they, especially the lapsed, who had actually sacrificed, should be dealt with. Were they to be readmitted to the church, and, if so, on what conditions? At Carthage, Cyprian refused to receive at once men who had denied their lord, even though some who had suffered in the persecution, confessors as they were now called, desired them to be readmitted, giving them certificates of reconciliation, libelli passis. Thus there arose a discontented party, composed of the aggrieved confessors, those who were dissatisfied with Cyprian's administration, and the lapsed who were eager to be received again into communion. These, with Novatus at their head, rebelled against Cyprian as being unworthy, in consequence of his flight during the persecution, to rule over men who had endured torture, with heroic constancy. They chose a deacon of their own, one Philisissimus, and set up Fortunatus, one of their adherents, as bishop of their party. Cyprian's severe views unfortunately set him at variance with the milder bishop of Rome. When able to hold a synod, he so far modified his decree as not to hand over the lapse to despair, but to readmit them to communion, after long penitence, in prospect of death. Libelitisi were at once readmitted, and in the troublous time when his diocese suffered from war and pestilence, he acknowledged works of mercy as an atonement for all sin. Novatus, who had been a champion of the laxer rule at Carthage, found his way to Rome, where he became an adherent of the stricter party of Novatianus, and did much to encourage the schism. If we may trust the account of Epiphanius, the schism of Meletius in Egypt was of the same kind as that of Novatianus in Rome. According to him, during the persecution of Diocletian, many Christians who had denied their Lord entreated mercy and forgiveness. Peter, the bishop of Alexandria, who was himself in prison with most of his brethren, 
was inclined to gentle courses, and would have granted communion to such of the lapsed as were ready to do penance for their fault. Miletius, however, bishop of Lycopolis, in the Thebaid, who was also a prisoner, opposed this, and would, at any rate, defer the readmission of the penitents until the persecution should be over. A majority of the bishops took his part. Soon after this, Peter died in consequence of the torture which he had endured, and Miletius was sentenced to slavery in the mines. On his way, however, to his place of banishment, he ordained several presbyters and deacons, and the schism which thus arose was still dangerous at the time of the Council of Nicaea. Miletius, on the cessation of persecution, had returned to Egypt. End of chapter 8, part 1